You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Uh, ben, this time last week, we thought that we were heading into a hashtag ain't shit going on, maybe two, maybe three week long stretch here between UFC events. When you said we thought that, I think what you mean to say is you said that would happen, and I said... Hashtag shit always going on. Okay, no, that's a solid point because I did say that and you said some shit will happen under your breath, almost like in in an old man, like on his rocking chair about to pop another Werther's original in his mouth. You said, did you know something always happens? My eyes clouded over as I saw into the future. Uh huh. Your one, your one eye, your soothsayer eye, your far eyes. Uh, so yeah, um, business has picked up since the last time we recorded. The co-main event podcast in a number of different ways. The return of Ronda Rousey, uh, Conor McGregor being censured by the uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission, the potential return of of Nick Diaz, the potential uh, exit of Jose Aldo, and just today, breaking news on the MMA Fortnite, former UFC welterweight champion and arguably the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time, George St. Pierre, has declared himself a free agent. Hey. So, for whatever that means, will all likely be discussed today on the co-main event podcast. I would say almost certainly. Judging by the notes that I have in front of me, almost certainly all yeah. of that will be discussed. Uh, we've got music in this week from our friend, uh, The Fifth Element, the music producer out of Fort Worth, Texas, that's been providing music for the show for the past few weeks. Uh, if you like what you hear for him, you can check him out at The Fifth Element. Uh, or facebook.com slash the fifth element at Twitter, app of fifth element and soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. Again, that's T H A in the word the and the numeral five in fifth element. But I see no reason to, to dredge this stuff out any longer than we have to. We got a lot to talk about. We do. We better get to it. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Ronda Rousey is either about to gloriously reclaim her title as the greatest human ever to walk the earth, or she's biting off more than she, she can chew and she's about to go down in flames against Amanda Nunes. And in round number two, is MMA the bar you go to late night after you've already been thrown out of all the other clubs? Greg Hardy thinks so. And in round number three, George St. Pierre is a free agent. Or is he? All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Beeston, 25-8. He writes, hey guys, question to you and the CME universe. Think about what you did this weekend. Would your weekend have been better if instead of doing whatever you did, you spent seven hours watching farmers-only commercials and largely forgettable fights between guys you didn't know existed? Ouch. Good point. A good point and a harsh indictment of the this week's this past weekend's canceled UFC Fight Night event from Manila. 
uh, where we were supposed to watch BJ Penn fight Ricardo Lamas in the main event, but uh, something none of us are really looking forward to. No, maybe the, I think our our curiosity could most precisely be described as morbid. Yes, regarding that particular matchup. I don't know. Was there a time this weekend? Because I did see other people lamenting this three-week break between UFC events on Twitter. Was there a time this weekend on Saturday night or whenever when you were like, you know what? I could be watching BJ Penn fight Ricardo Lamas right now, and that would be better than what I'm doing right now. Absolutely not. Uh, me either. I didn't think so. I got a babysitter. My wife and I went out on the town, had ourselves a, a good time. There was never any point when I was like, yeah, but... Couldn't I be watching some Russian heavyweight I've never heard of fight a Polish heavyweight I've never heard of? No, that did not enter into my mind at all. And in fact, you know what did enter into my mind is Sunday morning when I got up and started to think, oh man, how far away from uh, UFC 205 are we? Because that is going to be awesome. You see what happened? You gave me a weekend off and I had a chance to start building up the, the seeds of anticipation. Yeah, which is one that thing. seems like the way to do it, right? Yeah, the seeds of anticipation largely missing from uh, from the current mixed martial arts landscape because there's just no time, no, for the seeds to take root and sprout the plant of an anticipation, especially from our perspective, from the media perspective. And this is the only way that I do miss having an event every weekend is because at least it gives you ready, easy stuff to write about because there's always something happening, and so it's not too hard to look around and figure out, okay, what's you know, where's our content coming from? Uh, but it does actually give you a chance to kind of look forward, look, think more than just six or five days ahead and look ahead at what's coming and start to plan some stuff and uh, get everybody a, a chance to to really get excited and to, to build towards something rather than just living weekend to weekend. Yeah, from a, like a coverage standpoint, it's kind of amazing how dependent we all become on those weekly UFC events. For this show, for instance, when there's not a UFC coming up and we have to go to hashtag ain't shit going on strategies uh, when, you know, other than the fact that we get saved because uh, something will always happen. Yeah. As Ben folks would say. But uh, yeah, I, I did not miss it either. And I had actually had a fairly shitty weekend because my daughter came down with a weird flu uh, mid last week and so was sick all weekend. So it's not like we uh, had any big things planned. It's not like we were out there partying around. Uh, we were mostly here at the house with a sick child, and that was still better. That was still better <laughs> than watching, probably watching Ricardo Lamas destroy the ghost of BJ Penn. Yeah. Hey, but, hey, don't forget, Beeson258 points out, a lot of chances to consider an alternate life you would have lived had you signed up for Farmers Only. That's true, yeah. You'd think that the state of Montana, where you and I both live, probably has one of the higher percentage of Farmers Only accounts. Well, if it is indeed for farmers only. If if we don't, I don't want to see who does. Next question this week comes to us from Lo Roland Bleasy. He writes, holy fucking shit. That's one word. Holy fucking shit. And there's G's in there. There's two G's. Holy fucking shit. Just saw Mackenzie Dern's rear naked Oplata from Legacy this past weekend. That's W-K-N-D. What, what is he writing this on? I assume he wrote this on either his phone was or he, like an abacus. But was he in traffic while he was writing this? Could be. Dot, dot, dot. Should the UFC strawweights be concerned? Discourse, if you will. Don't email the podcast and drive. I didn't think I needed to say that, <laughs> but I'm saying it now thanks to Roland Bleasy. Uh, ben, did you see this? You saw this. You're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu nerd. You, probably, you know I saw this. You were probably sitting at home when you noticed a disturbance in the force. <laughs> Had to go to social media and you saw the... Uh, the the vines of Mackenzie Dern tapping out Montana Stewart with 
something that is referred that is identified on her Wikipedia page as an Imanari choke. Does that seem right? Does that okay? You're the guy. You're our analyst here. Sure, grappling analyst. I guess did, did Imanari get somebody with one of those? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. That's well, what just says that submission. Imanari choke. I've seen a. Uh, I've seen somebody like in a regional show before go. Like get a submission basically by using the omoplata to then go into like basically a neck crank and just kind of face crusher kind of deal. And it's a, a formidable combination once you get it going. I, I don't know if I can recall seeing anybody go from to their to rear naked choke, usually because if you can get that kind of torque on their shoulder like that, they're usually going to tap from that before you have a chance to get all the way around to the choke because she got her shoulder Runs pretty heavily in there. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, it, well, frankly, if you haven't seen it, go to the internet and find it. It won't be that hard and watch it because it's really something. But if you haven't seen it and you just hear it described, it seems borderline physically impossible, right? F- to go, well, I mean, I guess to go from, uh, omoplata then to rear naked choke position involves the human body bending in ways that it's not supposed to bend, which I guess is the point of the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, Mackenzie Dern really went out there and uh, put on a highlight reel submission of Montana Stewart at Legacy Fighting Championship. Well, the the question, though, is where are we going from here right. with Mackenzie Dern? And that's the big question with Mackenzie Dern, who at this point is only 2-0 as a professional mixed martial artist uh, and is 23 years old. So qualifies as a hell of a prospect in the uh, women's flyweight division and has a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu resume much, much longer, uh, mostly the color of gold and silver as you scroll down it through uh, her many accomplishments here as listed on her Wikipedia page. Uh, I think that there is plenty of reason to be excited about the future of Mackenzie Dern, but it also does seem like a hold your horses type situation. Uh you know, at just 2-0, and o, you obviously need to see her stretch out the MMA resume a little bit more before you start talking about her as, like, a top-level prospect. I think she comes from the kind of grappling background that makes her an interesting, like, blue-chip prospect right away. But, you know, like like we've talked about before, especially recently, uh, uh, inexperience is a thing that exists for, for most all of these these people when they get involved in the sport. and and you would like to see her get a little bit more uh, fully invested in her mixed martial arts career before she like comes to the big time. Well, yeah, but I also feel like we've seen this movie before, and that doesn't get a chance to happen. Sure. Like it's all like already you can see it unfolding in front of you, like uh, where the powers that be are looking on from afar and be like, okay, uh, female jujitsu whiz who also happens to be conventionally physically attractive. Yep. She checks a few of the boxes very, that the UFC is often looking for. Very marketable. Yeah. Uh, can, can finish fights and do cool viral video kind of stuff like this. It seems like already you're, you know, you're not going to get a chance to see like what would Mackenzie Dern or somebody with Mackenzie Dern's uh, pedigree have done if just asked to work up the ranks organically the way everybody else does. Because, there's already going to be some people looking at this and going, there's money to be made here. Let's make sure we don't screw it up. Yeah. This seems like the kind of situation and the kind of person the UFC might want to sign to a developmental contract if such a thing existed. You mean put her in Invicta and have uh, Zufa paying the, the bills, yes. so to speak? Yes. Or put her anywhere, frankly, on any of these uh, smaller promotions that are on Fight Pass. You know, I kind of don't understand why that hasn't happened yet. It's sort of a... 
it's a business model that's almost out there already in WWE, the way that it runs its developmental uh, system, which is, you know, at this point known as NXT, but has gone through several different evolutionary changes uh, and, and in a lot of ways allows the big company at the top of the wrestling business to create like vertical control of the market because if there's a hot prospect out there, they can always sign him or her and stash them away in this developmental system, which, you know, knowing what we know about the UFC management style seems like something that will be right up their alley. I think that right now they'd probably feel like they just don't have to do it because all these organizations, like you said, are increasingly coming under the sway of the UFC in one way or another. They have to rely on fight pass, their distribution or whatever, and a lot of them have their standard contract offers a Zufa out that if you get offered a deal to the UFC, then you can get out of your contract at any time. Uh, if you get offered a different kind of deal from somebody else, you can't. Right. Uh, so you don't need to necessarily pay their bills while they're coming up. Yeah, and I don't know. Does Bellator even have a strawweight division? I think that they are have been focused on women's featherweight uh, up to this point. Well, and there's also I mean, Mackenzie Dern missed weight for this fight too, right. so there's also the question of is, is 125 going to be the the home there 125 you mean 115 right well was this, i'm saying you're talking you, about the development of a new division well i'm saying that it seems increasingly like the ufc is thinking about uh maybe they want to do 125 and if you need if your argument is we don't have anybody who who could really go in there and be the star at 125 without slide fitting off from 115 or 135 maybe this solves that problem especially if she's going to have problems with 115 that's a good a good cover i think you just Made a good cover there for your mistake. <laughs> Next question this week comes from Niall in Northern Ireland, or Neil in Northern Ireland. He writes, so our boy Conor McGregor has decided he won't be fighting in Nevada again and that they aren't getting their fine either. With this latest development of the most marketable star in the sport now refusing to fight there, new owners who, new owners who aren't as connected to the state and the opening of New York as an MMA destination, plus all the problems the NSAC has caused for UFC fighters in the past, do you guys think that we will see a shift away from holding so many UFC events in Vegas now? Also, just how hard do you think Conor McGregor laughed when they suggested he should take a media course? Uh that would, that, I mean, there was a, as almost always happens, some funny stuff came out of this Nevada State Athletic Commission meeting. Not so much funny haha. No, no. Funny weird. Yeah. Funny hmm, I guess you would say. Well, and now I'm sure you've heard that it took several days, but the Nevada State Athletic Commission was like, oh, no, wait, you guys all misunderstood. We're not saying he has to pay $150,000. He only has to actually pay seventy five. The other 75 was what we thought the value of his community service and public service announcement or whatever would be, um, which kind of a, uh, a I don't know what you, how you think you're going to get away with that. You're just going to be like, you all misunderstood. And we, seeing the stories that all came out that day and the next day and the day after that, did not move in to correct it, except for like five or six days later, we said, oh, by the way, you guys all misunderstood. Seems like maybe you would have said something before if that was the case, if it was a simple misunderstanding. If you can say one thing for the Nevada State Athletic Commission, it is that it does not seem immune to public pressure, which I'm not sure if that's what you want out of a local governing body uh, like the Nevada State Athletic Commission. But, uh, I mean, at least it budged in, in some way or another. I think that the actual context of this question is pretty interesting, though, uh, because this, frankly, even before the clarification from the Nevada State Athletic Commission was the reaction of a lot of people upon seeing Conor McGregor uh, get jacked, so to speak. I mean, get held up on a street corner 
by the alleged regulatory body that sanctions his fights in Nevada. Uh, the reaction was, well, we would, it seems like maybe the focus of the sport might move away from Las Vegas, especially now that, you know, uh, WME IMG has bought the UFC. They are not a Nevada based company in the same way that the Fertitta brothers had been, uh, in the past. So, uh, I think that it's a possibility that you see a lot more of these kind of big UFC events start to move to other locations like Madison Square Garden and like some of the, uh, the other, uh, Big big ticket arenas that we've seen the UFC uh, travel around to during the during the last few years, but at least for the time being, Nevada is still known as the fight capital of the world. Uh, and at least up to this point, I feel like there has always been a certain mystique attached to Nevada-based UFC events because that would primarily be where they had the the biggest events. Uh, and I think that that reputation, that that sort of like aura, will stick around for a while. Uh, unless the UFC just uproots and says no more events in Nevada. Uh, but I, I mean, Nevada is going to keep being a, a hot spot for combat sports as it has been for years and years. Yeah. And I mean, their, their office is in Nevada. And it does, you know, it, for now, it's cue dramatic music. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. It makes sense. You know, you've been to fights in Las Vegas and it is in a weird way, uh, really convenient. For everybody, uh, not only just for you get a lot of tourists coming in from all, all over. You can always just guarantee that there will be tourists in town in Las Vegas. And we might underestimate the degree to which some of those people are like, I don't really watch this thing, but I'm in town. It's like, it seems like a Vegas thing to do is to take in a fight uh, and they might buy tickets. So you always kind of have that hanging around. It's not like where, you know, you're going to Cleveland and you're hoping that the economy isn't in the toilet by the time you get there. Can't wait to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes. Is that in Cleveland? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, you, you know, you have a little bit more of that built in and plus for the fighters, it's, it's way less of getting shuttled back and forth from arena to hotel to, you know, it's just kind of like you're in the hotel, you take the elevator downstairs for weigh-ins, you take the elevator back upstairs, you know, you, you take it downstairs to fight, you take it back upstairs. It, it's more convenient for everybody that way. Uh, and I think that we have to take into account that when the UFC goes to some other places like New York or breaking into new markets or something, there's the possibility that they end up paying a lot more on their end for like insurance requirements and things like that, that you, a lot of that is smoothed over because they've just been doing it for so long in Las Vegas. They don't have to worry about that. And even tax situations for the fighters, if you're going to fight in New York City as opposed to Las Vegas or something, you know, you might get a little hot headed now and say, I'm never fighting in Las Vegas ever again. And then they tell everybody that they misunderstood about your fine. And then a little time goes by and maybe you look at the, how much of a chunk of your paycheck, uh, New York took after you fight in Madison Square Garden. The next thing you know, they're saying, so 4th of July weekend in Las Vegas. And you're going, yeah, that sounds good. I'll get back at the Mac mansion. Yeah. Uh, not to mention for all of the like comedies of errors that having, the Nevada State Athletic Commission meetings actually streamed on the internet have revealed in a big picture way, the Nevada State Athletic Commission still runs a fairly tight ship as state athletic commissions are concerned. Like, as long as you don't have to go before the disciplinary right, hearing part right. of it, that part of it seems they make up as they go. just throw a dart at the wall. But like, they actually seem to run, and a lot of this is probably also incumbent on the promoter, but like, they run a fairly streamlined fight show set up because they have them all the time. They're used to doing it. It's not like going to Oklahoma or Texas or, you know, 
wherever else where they might ballpark Chris Cyborg's weight on the scale, or, you know, you might run into a, a smaller, less funded, less experienced athletic commission where there might be some, some rigmarole. Like Nevada, they got their shit together in a lot of ways. It's just maybe not necessarily the whole enforcing the disciplinary rules part. Yeah, that's the part. All right, last question this week for the Co-Main Event Cop podcast comes from Henrik uh, Mikatarian. Think I nailed that? Actually, maybe. So the UFC have announced, so there's your clue that this is coming from an, uh, from someone outside the United States. Well, Henrik has an H at the end, yes, so that's does, what so. was my clue. Yeah, the UFC have announced uh, Super Sage versus Mickey Gall and Paige Van Zant versus the Karate Hottie on the same night. Both these fights are likely to be interesting and a pleasure to watch for the eye candy on show, but have the UFC, quote unquote, done fucked up. Do you feel like you're introducing people to new, like foreigners to new language now? Done fucked up? They probably think that's sort of like a real US term. A little not bit. Just a not just a dundism. Not just one that they stole from us. Aren't they about to damage two up and coming stars by booking fights between very young, very marketable fighters? So this, uh, Ben is, is, some news out this week. Sage Northcutt. Mickey Gall's going to get his wish, frankly, and go out there and fight Sage Northcutt. Uh, and they're also going to do on the same card, Paige Van Zant against Michelle Waterston. So uh, this the Sage and Paige show is back. That's right. Again, we're just throwing them together on the same fight card over and over again like two rare pandas we're hoping will mate and produce some kind of super UFC fighter as their offspring. I see what you're doing. I'm not going to say that I'm against it, but I see what you're doing. Uh, as for the question about throwing all these potentially up-and-coming stars together and ruining a couple of them, I don't think so necessarily. I don't think that the loser of either of these fights is just garbage and gets totally forgotten about. I think that they're, they're interesting fights for everybody where they are as for, in terms of skill level and uh, where their careers are. Honestly, it just sounds like a whole lot of good fun to me. Yeah, especially if you're talking about losses by either Paige Van Zant or, or Sage Northcutt. Uh, or I mean, Mickey Gall, I guess you could probably lump in in the same, in the same category. They're all young enough that one loss isn't going to necessarily run the entire train off the tracks. It, it's, you know, they would certainly have the time to, to rehabilitate from that and reclaim the momentum and the status that they currently enjoy. Michelle Watterson is 30, uh, but per, still pretty young in her UFC career. So even her, you think if she loses this fight to Paige Van Zant, she would have time to build herself back up. This is going to go down at UFC on Fox 22, where I say, come for Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zant and stay to watch Brian Barberina show up looking like a fucking pirate when he goes out there to fight Colby Covington. That's just, that's my hot tip right there. Well, you, we all Pro know tip. that you are a Brian Barberina guy. I just like a guy who looks like he's going to board your boat in the 16th century and maybe start it on fire. Land on the deck with like a torch made out of tar and, and plunge it through the, the gangway. That's not a thing, probably. And, but uh, Take all your prospects and make them walk the plank? Yeah. Well, as the ship burns behind you, maroon you on an island and leave in his, in his cutter, in his galleon. And then get and booked just, against Colby Covington for, as a thank you. I'm just revealing that I don't know anything about sailing at this point. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes and various breaking news that we miss on all the days when we're not recording 
the podcast. Uh, shout out to gentleman and scholar George St. Pierre, by the way, for getting this breaking news in early on a Monday afternoon. Consider it. So that we could come out here and record to include his news as we record the coming event podcast. Hopefully everybody else takes uh, George's example and realize that's how it's done. Let's get up a early, little earlier in the day if we have to uh -huh. and get our news out there. Take a shower, clean yourself up, yeah. grab a bagel. Get our news out there on a timely fashion on Monday. You know the, what this means, though, right? What does it mean? Like, right before we publish this, George St. Pierre will sign a four-fight deal with the UFC. Like, that's yeah. just how this shit works. Yeah. Or he'll be gunned down mysteriously. <laughs> that, too. From the back of a motorcycle? That's just how I envision it going down. Anyway, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I admit that I was hoodwinked a little bit leading up to this announcement that Ronda Rousey will return to the Octagon because on whatever day it happened last week, I thought to myself, well, there's no way that Dana White goes to break some actual big news on the herd with Colin Cowherd, like middle of the day radio show syndicated on Fox Sports Radio, which surely, we don't even get here. Surely he would save it for UFC tonight. But he did it. He went on uh, radio with Colin Cowherd and announced that uh, Ronda Rousey is returning to fight for the UFC Women's Bantamweight Championship that she once owned with such ruthless aggression. And uh, she'll be coming back to the Octagon to headline uh, UFC 207 on December 30th against Amanda Nunes. Uh, that's, that one's going to be in Las Vegas. And uh, so that's, that's kind of a big deal it here, is kind of a big here deal. inside the bubble. Yeah. Well, and I think, isn't that one of the big things that makes Ronda Rousey herself a big deal is her ability to reach outside the bubble? Does it make you curious, though, as to whether that Ronda Rousey outside the bubble fervor has died down a little bit? Because it's been a while since they heard from her in the mixed martial arts sense. Yeah, that was one of the things that I wondered about. I don't know if we talked about it on the show or not, but during her absence, like w back when it was kind of a question whether she would return at all, I kind of wondered how her mainstream star power would hold up after we'd seen her get kicked right in the head by Holly Holm at UFC 193 uh, back in November of 2015. So almost a, a year from now and more than a year between her actual fights. And she has kept a remarkably low profile for the most part between those two bookings. And it did make me wonder if the mainstream media was going to be quite as interested in her as it was before. Although I guess I partially lean towards yes. And I think that it's because those media outlets will like a redemption story so well. And I think that, that Rousey has the media relations chops to pull that off. I think that there will be some interest. Uh, and I think that she'll continue to be a fairly big pay-per-view draw, although I get, I'll be keen to see that what kind of numbers this UFC 207 does, uh, regardless of the outcome of the actual title fight. But it seems to me, if I had to guess, like Ronda Rousey is going to maintain much of that drawing power. I think she'll maintain a good deal of it, but I think for a lot of people, 
the bubble is going to be kind of burst after you saw Holly Holm put her shin on her neck. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, maybe we can't just tune in every single time just for Ronda Rousey and expect to get a warm, fuzzy feeling in our, our tummies. Uh, also, though, we're at the point now where every single time up from here on out that Ronda Rousey fights, we're going to be asking ourselves if this is the last time. Are we not? Right. And that was almost where we were before. It's just that the feeling has uh, become even more pronounced now that she lost and has taken this break. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you're right. We're going to be asking ourselves how much longer she's going to be in this sport and whether or not she really will have the opportunity to bail on us to to be the female lead in the Roadhouse remake uh, on Into Infinity. Um, We're still doing that, right? As far as I know. I mean, I can't say that I'm a Hollywood insider, so I don't know if someone pulled the plug, if cooler heads prevailed, frankly, and someone pulled a pl- pulled the plug on that or I, not. I would assume you'd at least get a phone call if somebody's gonna gonna red light that picture. Is that how they do it, or they only do they only I, green light? Pictures? I guess that would be the opposite of green lighting, yeah. right? It's crazy to me to think when I was looking at Ronda Rousey's record before this that her last win was that knockout of Betch Cohea uh, in August 2015. The one right before that. When she submitted Kat Zangano uh, in February 2015, I remember very well because it was the day that my youngest daughter was born. And so it was like going to the hospital super early in the morning, coming home, putting my oldest daughter to bed, being totally exhausted, just tuning into the pay-per-view in time to see Ronda Rousey run out there in 14 seconds and submit Kat Zangano. Uh, and it seemed maybe just because I have raised a child to the point that she can talk and walk around since then, that seems like forever ago to me now. It really does. Yeah. And when you look at those victories previous to that home fight, we all we all know that Ronda Rousey went out there and, and took care of business as fast as possible. But when you consider 34 seconds against Betch Cohea, 14 seconds against Kat Zingano, 16 seconds against Alexis Davis in the fight just previous to that, then she gets knocked out by Holly Holm really early into the second round. What kind of athlete are we getting back here to fight Amanda Nunez? Because I think that in some ways that terrible knockout that she suffered at the hands of Holly Holm has changed the perception about Ronda Rousey. And clearly in the immediate wake of that knockout, like the worst, most mean-spirited take was that Ronda Rousey was never good in the first place. So now I don't know how much we're going to make the case that the women's bantamweight division has evolved in her absence, but she certainly comes back to take uh, an interesting stylistic matchup against the new champion Nunez. Uh, I don't know what the odds say, uh, but I think you're going to have some people lining up to say that that this is going to go poorly for Ronda Rousey, if I had to guess. Well, my question is not so much about what kind of athlete are we getting, because as far as like raw physical ability, I don't really question that. I still think that she's ahead of a lot of the division when it comes to that stuff. I question what you learned from that fight and what your your training for this one looks like. Because if you're looking at comparing these two side by side, one thing that has definitely changed since you know the period just before that Holly Holm fight to now is the conventional wisdom on your boy Edmund Targaryens. The Dragon King. The Dragon King. That has changed considerably. It went from like, hey, here's this guy who took Ronda Rousey all the way to the UFC title to... Um, this guy is terrible, and if he didn't have Ronda Rousey, he'd have nothing. Like, And probably the pendulum has swung too far, but especially lately, he has not done himself a whole lot of favors when he's in the public eye. And so you're just wondering if she has the kind of training that she's going to need to close those gaps and to come back and, and get it all together in time to charge right back in there 
jump straight into another title fight. And on the other side, if you got Amanda Nunes and she's over there at ATT, well, you're not so worried about the kind of coaching that she's getting. You know, I think as far as a stylistic matchup, it favors Ronda Rousey more than the Holly Holm one did, especially I think after we saw Holly Holm against Misha Tate uh, following this fight. We learned that Holly Holm is really dangerous if you're coming at her. And if she has to come at you, especially if she's worried about being taken down, she she has a hard time letting it all go and marching forward and, and really closing that distance enough to hurt you. She's she's too worried about the takedown, and as we saw at the end of that Misha Tate fight, maybe rightly so. But if you're going to come just bull charging at her like Ronda Rousey did for a lot of that fight, or if you're going to get caught kind of right in that, that zone uh, where her left hand can reach you, you're going to be in trouble. And I think Amanda Nunes, her problem is that she will come at you looking to hurt you, but she also might just punch her way right into a clinch. Uh, and that's where Ronda Rousey wants to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been clear for a while now with Ronda that we're dealing with a Brock Lesnar-style situation where it's not like she's going to suddenly decamp from where she's been her entire career and, like, really, because that'd be awesome, show up at Jackson's or whatever. Uh, I agree with you that it would be awesome. Uh, I don't know that, the, that like, that kind of super camp approach necessarily works for someone with the with the clear ego and mindset of a Ronda Rousey. But uh, I've always said that I thought that that's what Brock should have done. I think that's probably what Ronda should do is go get a bunch of different kinds of training that can close up some of those gaps in in her in her skill set and her knowledge base. Sounds clearly, like maybe Ronda's mama might agree with you. Clearly, though, she's not going to do that as far as we know thus far. And I would also say. Like the big guy, Brock Lesnar, Ronda Rousey is going to face this like second part of her UFC career, however long it lasts, uh, with an incredibly specific set of skills. And in order to beat her, you're still going to have to get around that preternatural judo skill that she used to beat all of the other women that she had fought prior to Holly Holm. Dominated this division with extreme prejudice and the the question to me not so much is will the dragon king edmund targaryens be able to close the gaps in her defense and and striking game because we know that he cannot the question is will he have to because if ronda can go out there and toss everybody on their heads and armbar them in under a minute like she did the first time around i think you're still in pretty good shape uh the question is whether or not she will be able to do that to a new crop of women's bantamweights, if indeed one exists. Okay, well, first of all, one thing you're forgetting in your comparisons between Ronda Rousey and the big guy is Brock Lesnar never lost to any opponent. Diverticulitis was the only opponent to beat Brock Lesnar. Diverticulitis and foot cream, right? <laughs> Eye drops, is that what we're I, saying at I this point? I think the uh, the jury's still out on exactly which personal grooming product it is that's responsible for his shocking uh, drug test failure. I think like you, I thought to myself, damn, I need to give myself some of that foot cream. I've been that using just turns me into a fucking juggernaut. I've been using the wrong foot cream that, that all my whole life. <laughs> turns out there's it. a foot cream that could just make you into a giant muscle bound freak of nature. Be now, doing backflips and shit if I had that cream. <laughs> the question has to be asked: What do you make of Ronda Rousey coming back after this this long layoff, departing on knockout loss, and she goes straight into a title fight? Because while I am not at all surprised, motherfuckers, I can understand why some people are like, whoa, wait a minute, what is this? But at the same time, isn't that basically what we've asked for from, 
you know, when Jose Aldo says he wants to uh, jump back in there for a title shot after getting knocked out in 13 seconds, and the argument to be made in his favor is, well, he did dominate that division for a long time. You make the same argument for Ronda Rousey here. Yeah, I mean, like you said, we're certainly not surprised, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to make any goddamn sense at all, especially if you proceed along the money-first, very bottom-line conscience lines that the UFC appears to have been doing its matchmaking on recently. You would think the biggest money fight for Ronda is still Holly Holm, the rematch, even though Holly lost the title, and, and you could, I think, even make the argument that another fight with Misha Tate might draw better than fighting uh, Amanda Nunes for the title. Uh, but here they drop her straight into this title fight again. And then after that, I heard Dana White talking about how if Ronda Rousey wins the title, she will fight Chris Cyborg. And, and at that point I was like, okay, hold up. What the hell are we doing here? Just reeling us in is what he's doing. Why would you have Ronda Rousey fight for the women's bantamweight championship and then throw her into a super fight? with Chris Cyborg, who we all know at this point is not going to fight at 135. Listen, listen, man, you know what's happening with Dana White telling you that Ronda Rousey is going to fight Cyborg. It's like your married boyfriend telling you that he's going to leave his wife. Okay. You know? That's, Another thing I can imagine coming out of Dana White's mouth, too. <laughs> that's, you know, this is this is you, you know, telling your, your longtime girlfriend maybe this Christmas will be the year you propose. You're, you're just... Throwing this out there as a possible future thing to keep keep the status quo, keep everybody interested, keep them thinking like, okay, this is still a potential thing that could happen in the future. But no, nobody is thinking about that in the near. That's just something he has to say. We got a couple minutes left, and then we need to move on. But what was your take on another thing that Dana White said that Ronda Rousey felt as though she had been betrayed by the media? <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen. This is this is one thing I've actually heard this kind of stuff from fighters before, and it's kind of even more ridiculous to hear it uh, from the UFC president. First of all, if you're talking about that she was worn down by how often she had to do media stuff, the media was not the one who set her media schedule. That would be the UFC who was thinking like, all right, let's get Ronda Rousey as many different places as we can and have her go out and sell this thing for us so that we can make money. And you're the ones who kind of ran her ragged there. So if it's an issue of how much she had to do, which would be completely understandable, it wasn't like we got to decide how often we got to talk to Ronda Rousey. You, she's one of those fighters. You can't really get to Ronda Rousey right, right now. Yeah. Um, if you're saying that like the media turned on her in a sense that they they wrote good stuff about you when you were winning and then not good stuff about you when you lost, that's kind of how that works, man. The media does not owe you like a, a, a loyalty or an allegiance like they're not on your side we're not supposed to be on anybody's side and i think maybe some fighters sometimes they especially if all you've done is win like ronda rousey had done maybe you get it in your head that that's that there's some kind of uh relationship there where these people are there to support you or to, to help hype you up and promote you and that is not how it works you know, when you win, they're going to say you're awesome, and when you lose, they're going to say the other person is awesome, and that's just how that kind of goes. So I don't know how there could be a betrayal there. A yeah. Betrayal implies a sort of, like, trust right. that I don't see how that was violated. And I don't remember, obviously, all of the things that were written about Ronda Rousey after that loss. I don't necessarily remember any from what I would consider to be reputable media sources that I thought were incredibly mean-spirited or a betrayal. There were a lot of memes. Uh, I'll say that. There were some memes that went around on social yeah, media. Yeah, but again, like that makes me wonder, are we making any differential at all between actual media 
and like internet comments and people making gifs. Nope. Nope. Okay. I can tell you right now that they're, that they're not making those distinctions. Okay, good. Well, that answers that question for me. Uh, we're going to talk about Ronda Rousey, I would assume, a ton more before she actually uh, gets into this fight on December 30th. Uh, so right now, Ben, let's do just, or no, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week? Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? is, it's first of all, it's a positive Are You Fucking Kidding okay. Me? All right. And it borders on a tips for the well-rounded fight fan. Okay, except I'm doubly interested. that this will in no way make you more well-rounded. Okay, all right. Have you seen Tanya Evinger's Instagram page? Uh, p- bits and pieces. Invicta champion Tanya Evinger, her Instagram page is, in a word, incredible. It's a really good time, for one thing. Uh, a good mix of, of memes, some of which are just outrageously disgusting, and some of which are just hilarious. And then there's stuff like where, you know, especially if you pair it with your understanding of her Twitter account, where she's like, okay, during this fight camp, I'm swearing off women. I'm not getting distracted by women. And then the next day on her Instagram, it's her posing with some girl in a club. And she's talking about how she's staying up all night with this girl. And you're like, Tanya Evinger is all of us. We can all relate to Tanya. It's kind of her Instagram. It's like if Phil Baroni were a lesbian world champion. Sold. Yes. There it is. Are you fucking kidding me? You're not following Tanya Evinger's Instagram. You don't want fun in your life. Well, Ben, uh, I know that you've seen it because I saw the video over on the website of your employer, the MMAJunkie.com. Uh, John Jones, the former UFC light heavyweight champion, is clearly out c- trying to keep himself busy, right? Trying to find stuff for him to do so he's not just at the house watching the soaps. It's a good idea. Uh, and so this week or this past weekend, he showed up at the Naga Grappling Invitational Tournament or Tournament Open Weight Tournament over there in Las Vegas uh, to compete. And I guess this week, my are you fucking kidding me, I don't know that it's positive, but maybe it's empathetic to the normal no-gi grapplers, Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys of the world who show up at the Naga tournament and find out that their first round opponent in the open weight tournament is John Bones Jones. Are you fucking kidding me? Because I assume you've seen this video. Yes. He has about a minute, two minute long grappling match with a guy who clearly is skilled and knows what he's doing, uh, but also possesses the man on the street build. Looks like me if I went down to the local uh, grappling place and threw on a rash guard and started to roll. And you see him out there with John Jones and you just think to yourself, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? You know when they told him, okay, you know, all right, first round. You and John Jones, and he was like, "Oh well, surely it's not that John yeah. Jones." What? Yeah, he thought it was. What? The, he thought it was that a youth pastor who has <laughs> the at John Jones Twitter account. He was hoping it was that guy. No, that's you're thinking of the guy who has the Ben Folks Twitter account, who's a youth pastor. The guy oh, who no. has the John Jones Twitter account is the computer programmer. Oh right, or, yeah, yeah, IT guy or not? But IT But also guy, but a good video s- game good sport. Very good sport. Good guy. Yeah, uh, I assume that that is like the highlight of that guy's like grappling career. The time you got time smoked he got by to, John Jones. Yeah, the time he got smoked by John Jones. That would be the highlight of mine, yeah. Still, are you fucking kidding me? John Jones cherry picking. Going down just wrestling mere mortals. Come on. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Chad, this one seems almost quaintly out of date considering all the big news that has happened uh, today and um, recently. But former NFL defensive lineman, former Dallas Cowboy Greg Hardy, who has basically been run out of the league oh, after uh, allegations of domestic violence and just uh, the, the difficulty of having him on the team without him being a distraction. And now he says he wants to do MMA, which we discussed a little bit on the Breakfast of Champions this week and made the point that it really is probably not that surprising that he would look to MMA after being run out of the NFL because if you happen to be like a six foot five inch, 280 pound, very athletic, physically gifted man with a checkered pass that might keep you from being able to participate at the professional level, at the highest level in some other sports, yeah, you should look at MMA. Because big dudes, we're kind of short on those anyway. Checkered past, uh, to put it mildly, we got plenty of those too. It kind of makes perfect sense that he would think about MMA, and yet the response from the MMA community, uh, especially people like Jay Glazer, who kind of had a foot in both worlds in the NFL and the MMA, was really immediately like, no, absolutely, he should not even be allowed to train. Yeah. And I think when you say very good athlete, you're kind of even underselling it in terms of Greg Hardy because this is a guy who even in the wake uh, of all of his personal issues and uh, reports of domestic violence, you know, photographic evidence of domestic violence, extremely uh, believable accounts of domestic violence – uh, from his ex-girlfriend. This is a guy who still got chances in the NFL. Uh, and the NFL cuts dudes who are way better athletes than most MMA heavyweights every day. Like every day in training camp, we're letting Matt Mitrione go if we're the NFL, right? And those guys show up in mixed martial arts and we're like, oh, pretty good athlete for a big guy. Greg Hardy is such a good athlete that even despite mounting evidence that he is not a good person, the Dallas Cowboys were still like, yes, we will take him, we will pay you a lot of money, and we will do our best to make sure that he's available to play on Sundays. So I would say, arguably, and this, again, just a guess, but maybe like one of the best athletes that we've ever seen in this sport, especially in the heavyweight division, uh, would be this guy at 28 years old, Greg Hardy. And yet, I feel like it's kind of telling that Jay Glazer would say, let's not give this guy the fighting skills. Let's not, <laughs> let's not coach this guy to participate in MMA. Because like you said, Jay Glazer, uh, an NFL reporter, I think still for Fox, uh, s- trains a lot of NFL players, uh, for fitness reasons and other reasons. Uh, you know, big time mixed martial arts enthusiast trains guys to, to fight at least, you know, to give them the basics. It's meaningful to me that a guy like that, a guy who I think you could surmise believes in second chances uh, and has a positive outlook, it seems meaningful to me that a guy like Jay Glazer's first take would be, no, let's not do this. Yeah, the, you bring up an interesting point, and I do, it makes me wonder how well exactly, like what kind of perspective Jay Glazer has on this, uh, if it's just one of these things where he he feels like he... MMA seems like a passion for him rather than more so than the job of the NFL. And is he looking at it from the perspective of this person, this human being should not walk around with these skills? Cause my understanding is that he's already been training. Uh, or is he looking at it from 
the sport does not want this this kind of stain that this guy will bring to you. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be that it's the former because I think that we can all say with very little hesitation that the sport will take this guy if he decides to make this a career and he shows, you know, some proclivity for it, some some ability uh, to actually fight rather than, you know, if he's more than just an athlete, if he's a guy that can actually fight, nobody has a hard time believing that promoters are going to want to sign this guy, right? And I think for kind of obvious reasons, uh, even though that might make some of us as spectators uncomfortable. Uh, but I mean, it's an interesting argument. And as far as I'm concerned, you made some interesting points in the story that you wrote on MMA Junkie this week about mixed martial arts and how we already have Anthony Johnson. We already have guys that have these pasts. Why is Greg Hardy, uh, demonstrably different? Well, that's, I guess the question that it comes down to me is if we're saying like, Hey, we don't want this guy in the sport at all, not even, you know, to find out if he can do it physically, if he can, you know, do it at the high level. We don't even want to go down that road. And I'm not necessarily saying that I disagree with that, but I do think we have to ask ourselves, on what grounds are we saying that? And are we prepared to make that our policy? Because right now, we haven't. And, you know, even though, you know, the UFC has talked tough at times on domestic violence, and it seems like it kind of depends who you are, how tough they're willing to get. You know, Dana White has said before that, you know, putting your hands on a woman is one of those things you don't come back from, and yet people have come back from it. They've signed people knowing that they have a, a past of domestic violence. People have stayed on the roster uh, with, you know, convictions in their past or with uh, re really recent allegations that are, you know, no less credible than the ones uh, leveled against Greg Hardy. So... We're, we're already doing that. If you want to make the case that, hey, we shouldn't be doing that, then all right. Like, I'll, I'll be right there with you. Like, let's, let's stop, let's get them all off the roster and make sure we never let anybody else on who has that same kind of thing in their past, if that's what we're going to do. But we don't get to selectively decide, you know, especially because we don't get to selectively decide it because we think that this one would bring too much bad attention. Like, the other ones, people don't know about them. So, the mainstream sports world won't care. This one, it will be a black eye because they know, uh, this about Greg Hardy, and if we're seen to be embracing him, it'll look poorly on us. That'd be, that's like the worst reason I can think of to do it. Uh, I also think that when Dana White was asked that question, and one of the things I agreed with him on was when he said, like, hey, I believe in second chances, like, yeah, and he did say, though, it's about what you do after you make the mistake, and that Greg Hardy was not super apologetic. Yeah, not at or, all, as far as I know. Uh, yeah, uh, did not seem to even willing to admit any wrongdoing. Uh, made that guns blazing comment after yeah. he had been accused of throwing uh, an ex-girlfriend onto a futon filled with guns. Like, that's not remorseful at all. So if you want to make the argument, hey, he's, he hasn't learned anything and he did not conduct himself ap well afterwards, therefore he's not deserving of a second chance, okay, fine. But he also said, well, hey, I don't know if he has what it takes to compete in the UFC. And they said, well, he's been training for a few months. And he said, oh, yeah, well, maybe I'll uh, play football for a couple months and go try out for the Patriots. There's one thing you don't get to say in the UFC anymore is that we don't know if this guy can can do it at this level because we've already with the CM Punk thing. Come on, man, we already showed that, that that's not a real thing that exists anymore. Yeah. UFC caliber is not a thing that exists. And I think if the Co-Main Event podcast were going to have a, a stated position on this, it's that we should we should have a policy against letting domestic abusers fight in mixed martial arts. Uh but that said, in the same way that CM Punk was valuable to the UFC, I think Greg Hardy would be valuable to the UFC in the exact same way. Because people like you and me, people like probably almost everybody that's listening to this show, if we are hardcore MMA fans, 
and we buy all the pay-per-views January through December, it's almost like we don't count in 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 certain ways. Like we create the baseline right. for the UFC, but the people who are really valuable are the people that are going to be noteworthy in one way or another so that the people who don't buy every pay-per-view buy this one. And I think Greg Hardy brings that kind of quasi celebrity. Yeah, but he also brings a lot of baggage. That's why it feels brings a he, lot of baggage. It feels like a little bit more of a Bellator kind he, of fit, does he not? I mean, to me, it, I'm uncomfortable with it. It's not only because it's professional fighting, but like if you're going to buy a pay-per-view with the, which you, where this guy is fighting, it's a lot more difficult to justify your money going in some fashion directly into his pocket right. than it is to like turn on the NFL on Sunday and he's one of 22 guys running around out there, right? That to me creates a dynamic where it's like, I am, uh, I am okay with this. Yeah. Well, and that's the same thing I am with voting with my money and I am okay with this. With Floyd Mayweather, every time Floyd Mayweather would fight, uh, and especially because of the way the, the promotional setup and everything was for his fights and in boxing, you did have to justify to yourself some way you are directly giving this man your money. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want Greg Hardy in the UFC. I don't think you want Greg Hardy in the UFC. But as long as we all pay for the pay per views, eh, kind of undermining our positions there, as far as I'm concerned. Good point. Not to buy the pay per view is kind of the only recourse, I would think. But don't act like you couldn't envision a scenario in which Bellator signs Greg Hardy after when he's like four and zero or something. They put him into a pay per view main event opposite Shane Carwin. And play the Shane Carwin is going to teach this guy some manners kind of kind of angle on you. Is Shane Carwin going to get to use both hands? <laughs> He's going to get to use both hands okay, this time. Good. So that'll be both easy enormous for him. hands. That'll yes. be unlike his most recent fight where he right. knocked out who, Jason Ellis. Yes, with one hand. With one hand. Just trying to keep themselves busy, man. It's like showing up at the Naga tournament. Same thing. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, here is one we did not necessarily expect this week on the Co-Main Event Podcast, and that is some breaking news out of the MMA Fortnite with Ariel Hawani this week, uh, where former welterweight champion George St. Pierre, who, as I think we've talked about on this show, had been uh, playing a little footsie with the UFC this year, trying to, to reach terms to, to make a comeback. Uh, St. Pierre went on Ariel's show today and declared himself a free agent, uh, which... Obviously, there's a lot to discuss about that mere proclamation, but, you know, can be seen either as a negotiating tactic by George St. Pierre or as like a full hearted attempt to get out of his UFC contract that he's still uh, under, even though he hasn't fought in the UFC in a couple of years uh, and and either move on with his life or pursue a fight in another organization, which is Kind of big news and the kind of thing that seems like the story is just starting. Yeah. Like when Randy Couture resigned as UFC heavyweight champion and it was not the end of the story. Indeed. Almost exactly the same thing because you do get the idea that the UFC is not just going to show up and turn George St. Pierre loose from his contract. Unless the UFC does not deem it worthy to go to court 
over some of the more draconian stipulations in its contract against a guy like George St. Pierre, who arguably has the financial resources to see it through and is financially set enough that he may or may not want to return, actually want to return to professional fighting. Uh, and at this point is just kind of out to make a point, right? Because if you're the UFC, that's a pretty big risk. Right. And when this is something we were talking about before we started recording, which is if you were going to create a fighter who would be the perfect person to challenge and all, and see all the way through a legal challenge of the UFC's contracts, you would create George St. Pierre, right? Because he, he has the money where he doesn't have to give up on it and fight the minute you offer him a settlement and the minute it looks like he's going to be just embroiled in legal battles forever. His legacy is secure that it's not like he feels like, oh God, I'm running out of time athletically and I have more to do still. And if anything, if he successfully challenged a UFC contract and changed the way the business worked, that would just be another part of his legacy. Uh, he has a good reputation in the sport as a guy who, when he decides on something we'll we'll set his feet and we'll we'll see it all the way through he is not somebody you're going to bait by for example going out there over and over again in interviews and telling people that he's not a real fighter otherwise you know he he would have come back by now like he has all those pieces in play that other people have lacked when they've gone to court against you know not just the UFC but any promoter and the reason why you never see or why you rarely see uh any of those kind of contracts, even in boxing, uh, challenged all the way through. You know, even when they have the Ali Act to kind of lay a framework for for how to challenge that stuff, they really often end up in the same kind of settlements uh, because fighters just don't have time on their side and stuff like this. And George St. Pierre seems like maybe he could actually afford to do that. Um, I wonder though if if that's where everybody actually wants to go because. I could see a lot of ways where, like you said, the UFC might realize, okay, maybe we, we mess around with them in court a little bit and then we try to settle with them somehow, uh, whether it's by just caving completely and giving him what he wants or letting him out of the contract or whatever. Uh, I mean, you do have to weigh the possibility that you're handing him over to Bellator, but if you're George St. Pierre, you also have to weigh, okay, if I get what I want and I get let out of my UFC contract, who do I fight then? Yeah. For the UFC, it would be borderline disastrous if, the more restrictive tenants of its standard contract were struck down in court. Uh, and it might be worthwhile, despite the fact that it's going to give some other promoter an enormous bargaining chip, it might be worthwhile just to let George St. Pierre walk away if it becomes apparent that he really is serious about seeing a legal challenge through. Like you said, in any legal battle between promoter and and fighter, most of the, uh, you know, the, the fighter is in a tough position because of the money involved and the time involved. And I think that was the thing that really slayed Randy Couture's options against the UFC was that he still really wanted to fight. And by the time he got embroiled in, a, in his, you know, last legal challenge against the UFC, he was already in his early to mid 40s. And like his time was running out with George St. Pierre. You get the impression that he would like to fight, but if he doesn't, he's going to be okay because he will continue to make Captain America movies or whatever. So to me, he's a guy that seems kind of dangerous for the UFC to tangle with in a, in a legal way. And there's kind of no telling what the new ownership will do for the UFC. Uh, and like you said, like if they, if it does to me, it, it seems less dangerous for the UFC to turn him loose 
the the easiest possible thing to do would be to come with a to a financial arrangement with George St. Pierre so that he could fight in the octagon. Short of that, it seems less dangerous to turn him loose. But like you said, for George St. Pierre, what do you do then? Even if you're a huge bargaining chip for Bellator, uh, even if you decide to try to promote an event on your own, you still face a lot of a lot of challenges. Even if you're a huge draw in Canada, who are you going to fight, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I guess so. But I also feel like at, at a certain point and when you – if you anger the guy to a certain point or if you get him so dead set against giving in and, and doing things the way you want them – he might be willing to take less money to go and do his own thing right. because at least it would be his own thing. Right. And, you know, he, he might not necessarily believe us that he would not do as good of money uh, promoting his own show in yeah. Canada. That's, I mean, that's one of the issues here is like George, like the prime, we're led to believe the primary issue here between George St. Pierre and the UFC is that he signed his old contract before the implementation of the Reebok deal. So for George St. Pierre, outside sponsors and the like, were incredibly lucrative. Now he doesn't think, or he, he's he's not going to have the option, right, to have those secondary sponsors. Uh, he is in fact an Under Armour guy. the The company that was rumored to be in talks with the UFC for the to create the UFC uniform at first, before it turned out uh, that Reebok got the got the contract. So yeah, it, we've been led to believe that the the monetary issues between the two entities here is that George Saint Pierre wants to be compensated more to make up for the money he will lose by not having secondary sponsors, which seems, frankly, completely reasonable. Right. So if you're George St. Pierre and you do leave the UFC, shoot, man, maybe it would be possible for you to make any, even more money. You know, like even if you're getting paid less up front, if you can rep your high-dollar sponsors, if like Under Armour and Gatorade and, and some of those companies that George St. Pierre represented were willing to stick by him, uh, I don't have a hard time believing that he could have a lucrative deal with Bellator or Ryzen or, or maybe even World Series of Fighting. Who knows? The question I would have to wonder if I'm the UFC is if I really do let George St. Pierre out of his contract, either right now or, you know, a couple months into a court battle or whatever it is, this seems like we're at kind of a tipping point moment for a lot of UFC fighters. For instance, before this news broke, our idea for the third round that we were going to talk about was all the dissension in the ranks that seems to be reaching a boiling point where you got Jose Aldo wanting out of his contract. Uh, you got guys like Ally Akita saying, that's it. I screw it. I'm retired. You know, you got a lot of, uh, anger among UFC fighters. And I think one of the things that has helped it boil over a little bit is the change in ownership has maybe made them feel like, okay, wait a minute. Like I'm not working for uncle Dana and Lorenzo so much anymore. I'm working for this big, huge company. Uh, and maybe these, you know, and they're being sued on, on other fronts. Other guys and are I mad. I think they saw the price tag. Right. I think UFC fighters saw the price tag and they thought to themselves, this is worth how much? Yeah. Because this is me. Right? Right. The, the UFC are the fighters. Exactly. It's yeah. not necessarily anything else. Well, and I think that once you reach kind of a critical mass with some of that stuff and it starts to seem like, okay, these guys are not someone that you can't possibly push back against. If enough other people are pushing back, it doesn't seem like such a, a crazy thing to do anymore. And if one one fighter wins, he pushes back and gets what he wants, then I think that might only encourage other people to do it. And I think the UFC is probably making those calculations as well. Like you can't now is not the time to even against a high profile guy like George St. Pierre to start losing a battle like that. So you got to be careful as to how you want to play it. On the other hand, it's insane that they couldn't reach some kind of agreement with him, especially considering that 
you could really use somebody who's big in Canada right now. Like in George St. Pierre, when he says, uh, you know, hey, you put me back on that card. You put me on UFC 206 in Toronto and I sell it out immediately no matter who I'm against. He's absolutely right. Like he'd be you wouldn't have to do anything except tell people George St. Pierre is back and you're you're back to doing big business in Canada every time he fights. It seems like everybody would have made money there. Why couldn't you come to some understanding with him? Yeah, it's a fascinating situation and frankly a fascinating time in in mixed martial arts because you know, a lot of us have waited a long time to see the fighters either organize or or uh, obtain a little bit more political capital and a little bit more power in the marketplace. And it feels like, like you said, we maybe are at a tipping point for wh- how that's going to happen and, and whether or not it goes down. And if you're the UFC, you do have to be really careful because if you come to terms with George St. Pierre, then I think a lot of fighters see what happened there and, and think to themselves, well, a really stringent challenge might get the company to bend a little bit and give me what I want. And if you let him out of his contract, then I think you send a message to fighters that says, maybe I can get out of my contract. And if you go to court and you lose, well, then like your most powerful tool in dominating this industry has just been struck down. So it almost feels like the UFC has painted itself into a corner and it's going to be extremely interesting and potentially delicious to see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. You want to do just saying stuff and then we will uh, get out of here for this week? Sure. Well, Ben, also this week on uh, the MMA Hour, a little bit more publicity for Mike Perry, who was recently announced. It was rumored early on that he was going to fight Matt Brown in his next fight, but then uh, the actual announcement came today, and it turns out he's going to fight Alan Joban uh, at an upcoming UFC event. I don't know, man. It seems like every time I turn around, I'm seeing Mike Perry these days. So I guess this week I'm just saying, is this guy somebody's nephew? <laughs> Did Dana White have a sister who died and on her deathbed he promised that he would always take care of little Mikey? And that's what that's what's happening here because I'm just saying I can't really figure it out otherwise exactly what we're doing here with this guy. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying uh, I know you must have seen the cover of Men's Fitness Magazine. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, still waiting for my subscription to come in the mail, but right. when it does... Uh, and it's got Dana White on there looking, I'm going to say, more fit than he has looked in very recent public appearances. Okay. Uh, where, you know, you see him show up at like some of these things and he looks like kind of alternate universe Matt Sarah. And then he shows up on the cover of Men's Fitness and he's super jacked. But that's not even what my just saying stuff about. My just saying stuff is about that on the cover of this magazine, it dubs Dana White, quote, the UFC's Warrior King. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm just saying for a magazine that's made up entirely of pictures and words, it seems like they don't care what words mean that much. Because he's not a warrior. And he's not the king, really. Yeah, ne- neither of those things are true. I guess the UFC part, is that's accurate. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, talk another hour for about all of the happenings in mixed martial arts. Maybe next week we can get to uh, Ain't Shit Going On episode. We'll have to see. See, now you long for an Ain't Shit Going On episode. Almost. Almost. Speak of just wistfully. Yeah. A little tear trickling down one cheek, as I think fondly of it. As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. You think maybe it was supposed to be Conor McGregor? 
on men's fitness because Warrior King there you makes go. a little bit more sense yeah. for him. And they had to swap it out in the last at the last minute using an old picture of Dana White that they had from the last time he was on the cover. He's been on the cover of men's fitness before. Yeah. Hopefully that picture makes 